0: This ad free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership.
1: Hey, you guys. I thought I would never have to talk about Elon Musk again, but today, after we finished taping the show, Elon filed with the SEC that he wants to back out of his $44 billion agreement to buy Twitter, setting up kind of a phase two in this whole saga. We taped too early in the day on Friday to get to this news, but you can be sure we'll be back to you next week with more all about it. Okay, on to the show.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Vems the Breaks episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of quite a tumultuous week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also Hello. of Axios. Hi. We're here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we are, well, you two are just looking at Boris Johnson and rolling your eyes and going, ha because because you don't have like you know you don't come from that benighted island some of us do anyway yeah the uk is falling apart again the prime minister has resigned we're going to talk about what happened there we're going to talk about the jobs numbers that came out this morning whether we're in a recession the vibes we're going to talk about air travel we are going to wind up in a weird digression somewhere in the numbers round about art authentication, because why not? (laughs) We're going to have a slate plus about probabilistic analysis, which is much more interesting than it sounds. It's all coming up (laughs) on slate money. Okay, let's talk about the jobs report, because we had, what was it, 375,000, some massive number of jobs created last month, putting the lie to all of those naysayers who are convinced that we are in a recession, aka the Atlanta Fed's now cast, which is this weird robot they have that tries and works out whether we're in a recession or not. No one who's actually human seems to think we're in a, well, sorry, there are definitely humans who think we're in a recession, but they tend to be political or have an agenda that axe grinding for Wait, some reason. I-
1: Actually, I actually think you're wrong. I think a lot of Americans think we're in a recession. A lot of the polling has shown that it's I think not a majority. True, but
2: there there are a lot of Americans who don't really understand that there's a technical definition of recession and it's another vibes thing, right? They're like oh, I feel the, like the we're in a recession. Thing, yeah,
0: I think there's a combination of two things happening. One is inflation, and the other is stonks go down, and those two things put them together, and the vibe is recession. Right. But as we just saw from the jobs report and every single human forecast for GDP growth in the second quarter, yeah, no.
1: But it's strange. We can agree on the strangeness, right? The stonks are stonking. There is softness in some of the commodities. I've learned that we call copper Dr. Copper,
0: be- Dr. copper. <laughs> because <laughs>
1: copper prices are good for diagnosing the economy and copper prices have gone down quite a bit. So that's a sign, that's an indicator.
0: So let's just first start with stonks and copper. What we see in both stonks and copper is down, Yeah, but down from crazy high, bubblicious levels. Mm -hmm. And if you get ahead of yourself and then you retrace to something sensible, that doesn't mean you're in a recession. That just means you got ahead of yourself and you've retraced to something sensible.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We wrote like a little story or I wrote a little story in Axios markets today sort of pointing out like coppers back down, lumbers back down, all these like little signs. But when you pull back and you look more expanded out at the time series, they are down, but they're still crazy high. Things are
0: still yeah, very Kate, high. A uh, uh, glorious editor, Kate Marino, had a great chart of shipping costs, which mm-hmm. I think is probably one of the key numbers in the global economy, especially the amount of money it costs to ship a container from Shanghai to Long Beach. And that was $20,000. It's now $7,000. So you're like, oh, there's no demand for goods. The economy is shrinking. We're in a recession, except for $7,000 is still four times what it was pre-pandemic.
1: Right, right. So things are going back to normal. Not really. They're going back to a new normal, which is higher than the old normal.
0: We haven't worked out what the new normal looks like, right? (laughs) Because the new normal does include a bit more structural inflation than we're used to, which Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a bad thing, depending on who you are. It certainly seems to include a pretty consistently substantial number of new jobs every month, which Neil Owen wrote this morning is like, weirdly, bizarrely, mind-blowingly, something that the White House doesn't want. Like, the president would actually have preferred that fewer Americans got jobs last month because this, you know, something, something, fed reaction function, something, something. But I'm like, whoa. Like, when was the last time you saw a president who didn't want more jobs?
1: Well, I think two things. First, you should probably pull back and explain the something, something part that you just yada (laughs) yada. The other thing is job growth has been spectacular throughout the Biden administration, and they've gotten like, no one cares. They've gotten very little credit for that. You see it every month when the jobs report comes out. People in the administration are tweeting how amazing it is, all the growth, blah, blah, blah.
2: They don't know how to tell a story around it. They just sort of throw out the stats and say, this is so much better and it's Biden's win. But if you can't convince normal people that that's what's happening and you don't do this consistent storytelling, then nobody believes it. They just believe
0: vibes. I don't think people believe that people are getting laid off and it's hard to get a job. I think everyone who wants a job can seemingly get a job. And what's more, people who, like, one of the weird things about this jobs report is that it's not clear where these jobs came from, who took them, because the labor force participation rate didn't go up. It's not like the number of people in the workforce went up. But the number of jobs went up. And the unemployment rate didn't go down. And so like some there are two different surveys in the jobs report. There's the household survey and the establishment survey, not to get too nerdy about this, but they don't agree with each other, basically. When you surveyed households, they said that employment went down. So there is this weird disconnect that if you like survey households, they say, Yeah, we don't have as many jobs as we used to. But then you survey employers and they're like, actually, we're employing way more people than we used to. You're like, what?
2: I think people also just can't wrap their heads around how extraordinary the unemployment situation is right now. They understand that it's a tight labor market, but at the same time, you know, we haven't seen a labor market this tight in a long time and they don't remember what the baseline is.
1: Well, I did write about this interesting working paper this week that I'm, can I talk about it? So this economist named Darren Grant at a public university in Texas, Sam Houston University. Back in 2014, he wanted to look at, do consumers have a realistic perception of how the economy is doing? Do they understand the macroeconomy? When you ask someone, how do you think the economy is? Do they really know? And so he did this thing where he pulled together all those like ABC, Washington Post, NBC, all those different polls where they say, how do you think the economy is doing? He aggregated them going back to the 1970s and then he like crossed them with the unemployment rate GDP numbers and inflation numbers and then he figured out somehow using economist magic that I can't explain to you and I'm sorry because I don't have a PhD he figured out the weights of like how much people consider the unemployment rate or GDP or inflation when they're coming up with their like very good or not great assessments of the economy and he found a really clear connection clear enough that the consumer surveys could predict when there were adjustments to the unemployment rate, you know, how they come out the next month. And they're like, actually, we screwed up the unemployment rate. Well, the way he was looking at the surveys actually could predict the screw-ups, like when consumers thought it was a little better or a little worse, then the correction would happen. So that's cool. And maybe no one was that interested in the research in 2014. So then he was curious, has anything changed? And he went back and updated it through the pandemic to present and found that things have really changed. People don't weigh the economy the same way anymore since the pandemic, whereas they used to think unemployment was three times as important as inflation when they evaluated the economy. Now people think it's like, maybe like one and a half times as important. So it's not as important, the unemployment rate, to people's perceptions of the economy as it used to be. And he doesn't know why.
2: (laughs) This is is like total anecdote. And this is political, absolutely. But I have a family full of right-leaning relatives who, Mm -hmm. when they talk about the economy, the only thing they talk about right now is gas prices. It's just become a proxy for everything else. And they don't have any concept of one-off demand shocks or anything like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they think of it as being somehow indicative of what's going on holistically in the economy. And you sort of can't move them off of it. They're Mm -hmm. like, you know, nope, I go to the pump and that makes me feel really bad about what's happening. And there's kind of no deeper analysis there.
1: Yeah, I was puzzling over it because he was saying he thinks it's because in 2020 there was so much fiscal stimulus that unemployment was genuinely horrifying, but people were getting all this money. Unemployed people, just regular people were getting stimulus checks and all this money. And it made, it blunted the pain of unemployment to such an extent that it decoupled people's perceptions of unemployment and the economy. If you
0: ask people how they're doing, they'll tell you how they're doing. And as long as they're getting as much money as they were getting when they were employed, they're not going to be too sad about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like, it broke the connection and it hasn't returned to whatever it was. It hasn't reconnected yet. So I thought that was pretty interesting explanation that I hadn't heard before.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think just more broadly, I've been writing about this a little bit. The pandemic is this weird liminal period, right? It's this aber- aberration that no one quite knows how to conceptualize. And we are absolutely not in any kind of post-pandemic equilibrium yet. We are mm-hmm. still trying to work out what the exit from the pandemic is really going to look and feel like. And we have no idea what's going to be on the other side. Mm-hmm. And and that like rite of passage, when you're going through a rite of passage like that, it's deeply uncomfortable and weird. And that helps to explain that sort of vibe that people are feeling. Like, we are going through this rite. We don't know what's on the other side. Everything is weird. We're seeing more inflation than we've seen in 40 years. Everything is weird there's a war in ukraine which is hitting gas prices there's anyone trying to take a flight we'll talk about this later is you know wants to change their mind and yeah there's just a bunch of weird discomfort in day-to-day life including at petrol stations which shows up in vibes in fields that we're in the economy much more than did i get a paycheck this week
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. I also wonder if during the pandemic, people had a just different hierarchy of fears. And among the things that they were worried about, the economy just wasn't the biggest thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's interesting. Well, too. That it,
0: yeah. It's true. Like the, when the economy really was terrifyingly bad when it was falling off a cliff in March and April 2020, it wasn't even the most terrifying thing then. Right. Like, that was like when we all thought there was this exponential growth in COVID cases and right. no one knew how to treat it, and no one knew when it would start leveling off. So there really was never a time that people were worried about the economy.
1: Now is the time. (laughs) (laughs) Now is the time. Now is
0: the time. Yeah, The healthy jobs number and come July twenty eighth, the presumptively reasonably healthy GDP number, notwithstanding.
1: Notwithstanding. But is there a comparable period of disruption that we could look at in American history? I don't know why, but I feel like you might have this in your head like after world war ii for example we had a lot of inflation also but it was i guess a more positive vibe because we had exited
0: yeah i feel like i feel like we just won a world war is is broadly (laughs) a a good vibe rather than a bad vibe
1: but we just i mean we didn't win against the pandemic a lot of people died so
0: but Um, i mean but no i mean like that you know I'm, i'm i'm a brit right and The thing that you saw in the UK after World War II was a major general election, Mm -hmm. and the glorious victor of the Second World War, Winston Churchill himself, getting kicked out on his ear, and the British population saying, like, we want something completely new, completely different, and basically bringing in an unprecedentedly left-wing government who created the National Health Service and did a whole bunch of stuff that basically created modern Britain. These things, these turning points can be huge. And I, I wrote in my newsletter today about this new conception of like this new sort of policy consensus, which Danny Roderick has called productivism, which we don't need to go into. But like, we are beginning to see how politicians, like what the sort of post-neoliberal order is maybe going to look like, Mm -hmm. but it's so early. It's still like we're just through a glass darkly.
1: You started speaking of the UK. Should we talk about that now?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Should we talk about the UK? I mean, it's a great segue, right?
1: I think so. Boris Shambles? Is that what you called it? (laughs) Boris Shambles,
0: yeah. The Winston Churchill biographer who spent about 10 minutes writing his Winston Churchill biography, and it showed. But that was about 10 minutes more than you spent trying to govern the UK while he was PM for three years. <laughs> um, he's a campaigner by nature. He's a rhetorician by nature. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts of actually trying to run a government, I think we can all agree that he was absolutely terrible at that. And... There was scandal after scandal, and eventually this week, well, I think 59 ministers resigned from his cabinet, wow. something insane like that. And he was like, okay, the jig's up, I resign. Except for he didn't resign, he's still prime minister, and he <laughs> wants to continue to be prime minister through, like, September. Them's
1: the breaks. that's it,
2: what he said. That's
0: what he said. <laughs> Them, Them's the breaks," said the British prime minister who was born in New York.
2: I'm just astounded that what... Brought down Boris Johnson was a sexual misconduct case that Boris Johnson was not personally responsible for. <laughs> well,
0: Boris Johnson did say, Pincher by name, Pincher by nature.
1: Uh, I wrote that down. <laughs> so good. I was like, we must include that.
0: <laughs> pincher was his deputy chief whip who he promoted into this very important job in what everyone seems to understand was full knowledge that he was a sex pest
1: yeah there's so much amazingness to the whole scandal, but as an American, you can't help but compare it to here. And it's so clear. like he just gets caught time after time, this guy Boris just lying, and he owns up to it and apologizes each time, <laughs> like with this pincher thing. at first, he was like oh i didn't I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then it comes out he not only knew about it. he had like This catchphrase, he said, "Pinger by name, Pinger by nature. And he has to come out and oh, and he gets all his ministers to go out lying. Oh, we didn't know. We didn't know. And then he has he gets caught and then has to come out and be like, I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) I see how this is bad. But like compared to Trump, Trump has never come back out. I'm not saying Boris Johnson's a good guy or anything, but like he at least was like, I'm sorry. Has Trump ever said those words? No.
2: No. But also the environment that Johnson is in is totally different. You know, here we've just kind of accepted that people like Trump are going to behave like pathological liars. Yeah. And so they're never held accountable for it.
0: And there's no pressure for them to apologize. I feel like people like Trump is doing a lot of work there. Like, really, (laughs) people like Trump is Trump. He is kind of sweet, generous. There's no one else who has his degree of shamelessness and his degree of being able to just double down on lies which everyone knows are lies. Boris certainly tried. He tried his very best. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, he has a newspaper columnist's desire to try and say something coherent,
1: Uh, where
0: Trump would just bluster.
1: And also, like, my American sensibilities, the other scandal, I guess, that was, like, a big deal was the parties. Party game! (laughs) (laughs) So like his government made all these strict lockdown rules and then went and had a bunch of parties, even though they were against the rules and everyone got upset about it. And when I heard about it, I was like, I don't care. I know that's really
0: like well, I just that's also because we, I you don't never care. had those rules. Yeah, like, I you weren't so. you weren't in that situation that the Brits were in, where like you couldn't go to your own daughter's funeral because the lockdown was so strict. Okay, and then everyone at Number Ten was boozing it up.
1: Thank you for explaining that to me. That does sound awful. Um, also,
2: yeah. our elected <laughs> officials, when they violated norms about what you weren't weren't supposed to do, they were just doing it in public. Like you would watch White House events right. on cable news, and nobody's wearing a mask. And I think because they weren't hiding it. Nobody thought, like, this is hypocritical. It was just, okay, that's how this works. It's shamelessness or something. Yeah.
0: The shamelessness in the UK is Boris Johnson coming to power on a promise to get Brexit done, whatever the hell that was supposed to mean. And then getting Brexit done by passing a bill, which is an international treaty with the European Union, which basically set up the structure for Brexit, how it was going to work. And probably the number one problem with Brexit, as we have talked about ad nauseum on this show over the past seven years, is the question of Northern Ireland, right? And you want to keep the island of Ireland as a free trade area. But if the south of Ireland is in the EU, and it's treating freely with the north of Ireland, then you need to have some kind of customs barrier between Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain, which is what happened. And so they set this up. It's all enshrined in the form of a treaty. And then 18 months later, the government comes out, Boris Johnson comes out and says, we just discovered that we put a customs barrier, you know, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We need to break all of our treaty obligations in order to fix this terrible situation, I can't imagine who did this, but we need to, you know, basically break international law in order to fix this terrible problem. And I think that mm-hmm. was the point at which everyone just said, OK, Boris, you are literally incapable of governing.
1: I don't understand. But can, I'm so sorry, if you I
0: if you are in England, let's say let's say that you are a widget maker in Liverpool and you want to send a bunch of widgets to Belfast. Liverpool and Belfast are both in the same country the United Kingdom of Great Britain yes. and Northern Ireland. Okay. But they're in different trade areas. Great Britain is its own trade area, but Northern Ireland is in the European trade area oh. because it has to be in order to have free movement of goods and services between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland on that landmass. Okay. So basically, you need to fill out a bunch of paperwork to send your widgets from Liverpool to Belfast and a bunch of... Because of Brexit. Because of Brexit, yeah. And a bunch of unionists are very upset about this.
1: And Boris Johnson created... He didn't create it. He did Brexit. So he is responsible for the situation between Liverpool and Belfast.
0: He was the one who made the decision that he was going to put that customs barrier
1: And then 18 months later, he was like... How could this have happened? He's like the guy in the hot dog costume. Yeah. Exactly. yeah okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. You don't hear about that one as much as the other ones because it's harder to understand. But now I understand. But that
0: was like politically the most toxic one because he was basically asking the Tory Party to vote to break a international treaty obligation, and, and they, like, for obvious reasons, they weren't loving that idea.
1: I hate to ask this, but how is Brexit going?
0: It's going really badly. <laughs> I mean, everyone knew it would go really badly, and everyone's expectations were entirely fulfilled. We're talking about depending on who you talk to, like... Uh, Long term permanent erosion of somewhere between 5 and 14 percent of the wealth of the country has just been evaporated basically as a result of Brexit. The pound is what like 119 or something, it's still unbelievably weak. Every day pretty much brings a new headline about the things you can't do and how terrible it is to just try and do basic business in the world. Like the United Kingdom is more cut off from world trade than not just established European countries, but even like, you know, tiny, I don't know, something like Nigeria. Because at least if you're Nigeria, you've had many decades to try and integrate yourself into stuff. Britain has no real conception of where it stands in the world. It doesn't have free trade agreements with the UK, barely has much of an agreement with the EU. The Liz Truss, who's been in charge of trying to negotiate things with the EU has just managed to alienate everyone. The Europeans all hate the British government. There's no goodwill there. Yeah, it's a complete disaster.
1: Well, could you mean like an example?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I might I might be like anticipating our next segment here, but one mm. of the great examples is the way in which Brits have found it incredibly difficult to just travel. Like this is what Brits do is they travel around europe Mm -hmm. every summer and they're like oh shit this is really hard now Mm.
1: okay yeah we could talk about that more but
0: no but mostly it's things like let's say that you want to import a bunch of olive oil from greece or spain to Mm -hmm. sell in the uk that used to be incredibly easy and seamless and there was no paperwork involved now it's just a nightmare
1: so if you go to the stores are there like shelves that are empty or products you can't get, stuff like that?
0: So that has been feeding into inflation, right? Because all of those importers now need to reflect the extra costs of importing stuff in their prices. But yeah, and there's less stuff. And mostly also, especially in London, there's a labor shortage because if you've been to London at any point in the past 20 years, you'll know that the person who was like serving you in a restaurant or a bar or something was from somewhere in Europe, somewhere Mm. in the EU, you know? And those people can't get work anymore.
1: Wow. Thanks, Boris.
0: Yeah, great. <laughs> so right now, as of this taping, Boris is still prime minister. He has said that he might change his wedding venue from Chequers, the official prime ministerial residence, because he's only a caretaker prime minister now. <laughs> is it, you know Maybe the caretaker shouldn't be having a, a massive wedding party. And then what's happening now is we wind up with a big leadership election. No one has a clue who could take over the Tory party. And um, yeah, shambles.
1: Oh, and I heard that people are saying that they could un-Brexit now, but you are saying that will never happen.
0: Never say never, but (laughs) it, like, Brexit totally broke Britain, right? It tore it in half in the way that, I mean, the Americans know what it's like to live in a country which is broken in half and where one half doesn't have any conception of the humanity of the other half. That's kind of what happened in Britain too around Brexit with the leavers and the remainers. And everyone is struggling to come to terms with this thing that happened, Brexit. And while there is definitely a hardcore of Remainers who would love to re-enter the EU. Politically speaking, it would just be a very hard sell to try and tell people, like, you've just gone through all of this for nothing, and now we're just going to try and hit reverse. And all of the levers would just be absolutely irate. And so it could happen, but I'm going to say 20 years. It's not going to happen anytime soon.
1: I feel like we made this point already, but Michelle Goldberg has a good column in The Times about it. And I mean, Brexit may have broken the British people and riven them in half forever, whatever, but they still appear to have some kind of democratic functioning political system because they were able to eject this sort of bad leader. Well, we have a
0: parliamentary system. I mean, that's the the difference between a presidential system and a parliamentary system is that the legislature can eject the prime minister through a simple no-confidence vote. Yeah, there's a mechanism. There's a mechanism for that, Mm -hmm. exactly. In the presidential system, there's no way for Congress— well, there is a way for Congress to kick out the president, but it's much more involved.
1: right? And in this case, in Boris Johnson's case, his party, like, turned on him. They were like, it's enough already. You suck. We're Mm -hmm. over you. 56 of the ministers resigned, right? I mean, that's just—that would never happen here. It hasn't, yeah. We
2: are so past the point where anybody would resign in disgrace for— Anything at all? What would be the bar now?
1: I don't know. I mean, I guess a few Trump cabinet members did resign on January seventh. What's her name? Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos and Mitch McConnell's wife were two. That yeah, but the bar is very high. I don't know what you would. I mean, there was a coup attempt. Yeah. I don't know that <laughs> we got just two. <laughs> so good for the British is what I'm saying.
0: Yay. parliamentary systems. I mean, I do, I do believe the parliamentary systems by their nature, uh, more flexible, more robust, that they can absorb shocks better in some way than presidential systems. Mm -hmm. But that's little solace, I would say, to the Brits right now who are just looking at the wasteland that has been bequeathed to them by a series of absolutely terrible pms including but not limited to boris johnson i mean like i'm one of the few people who's still going to come out and say like he was terrible but he still wasn't as bad as david cameron there
1: you go <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's stick on the subject of vibes and talk about planes because this is a subject that i've been thinking about that The dynamics of air travel is super interesting because prices are going up because quality is going down. And that's not something you see very often in capitalism.
1: Yeah, you do. Real estate, rents in New York City, prices up, 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 quality down, down, down. No?
0: Quality isn't going down. It's just the prices going up.
1: No, you you get terrible apartments and they cost more money. MTA
0: service. No, but I'm just saying like the apartments are always terrible. It's not like the apartments are getting worse.
1: I see. Okay, fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What we're seeing in the airline industry globally, and again, this is one of these things where Americans love to think that it's an American problem, but it really isn't. It's a very global problem. Is the airports in particular are really struggling to find like ground staff, a bunch of airlines laid off or furloughed a bunch of people during the pandemic and found it very hard to hire them back. And there just doesn't seem to be the kind of institutional memory needed to run travel where demand is totally back to pre-pandemic levels, but supply just isn't, right? Labor supply, most importantly, isn't. But, you know, the number of planes, the number of pilots, the number of ground stuff, everything can't cope. So... That's creating massive lines at airports. It's creating a very unpleasant atmosphere on planes, in airports. And the way that the airlines are generally reacting is by cutting flights. They're canceling a whole bunch of flights that they had scheduled, and they're like, we just don't have the capacity to be able to run this many flights. So they're cutting flights, they have fewer flights, and then the way that they can cope with the sheer demand for the few flights they have left is by just raising prices enormously to try and reduce the amount of demand they're facing. And so now what you have is people going, well, I need to travel. Like, I've got all of this pent-up demand from two years of not traveling. I'm going to bloody travel. And when they do, they pay through the nose for a terrible experience and, they, and that's just bad vibes.
1: They should drive instead. Just don't fly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, as it's we enough. have discussed, there are bad vibes associated with driving too.
1: right. Right. Well, I don't understand why the airlines are so short-sighted and terrible. I mean, like thousands of... It's
0: not just the airlines, it's also the airports. If you look at Mm. like in Europe, like Gatwick and Schiphol and places like that, are just like they're completely overwhelmed and they Mm -hmm. can't cope. Dublin.
1: I mean, I feel like some of this does go back though to 2020 and airlines and I don't I didn't follow airports as closely in terms of layoffs, but they let everyone go.
0: Well, I mean, the airports were just ghost towns, right, during the pandemic. There was nothing happening in them.
2: But you could sort of anticipate the problem that's occurring now. You know, it's it's remarkable that there wasn't more policy
0: intervention to provide So what kind of the, policy intervention would you have looked for? I
2: would say bailout funding for the pandemic, specifically for industries that you know are going to
0: I mean, we did have that. There was a big airline bailout component of the fiscal bailout and the the stimulus bill. And then the airlines were like, actually, we don't even need it because we have so much free-floating money and liquidity that we'll just, keep on going without it but yeah they could have kept
1: their workers on that's what should have happened right they should have kept people on
0: maybe they could have kept their workers on or maybe those workers would have quit anyway because you know again a lot of these ground stuff jobs, I feel like they're a little bit like the back of house jobs in restaurants, that people quit during the pandemic or lost during the pandemic. And then they had a couple of months of not doing those jobs. And they were like, that job was actually terrible. I'm going to go <laughs> off and do something yeah. completely different. And I feel like a lot of these airport jobs in particular, but also many of the airline jobs are relatively underpaid, not that pleasant. And people are like, in this labor market, I can do something where I earn more money and I, it's less hard work. So I'm going to do that instead.
1: Yeah, but I think that is kind of what I'm trying to say, which is the airlines and the airports did a bad job on the employment side in that the jobs that they created were bad, and then they let people go instead of giving them job security. And I don't think a lot of these workers ever had much job security. These were bad jobs. So this is happening now, but it's not entirely unanticipated because that's what happens when you have bad jobs.
0: People didn't realize, I guess how bad the jobs were or how, I mean, a lot of these... I think
1: they did. There's been unions fighting for better work conditions the whole time, at the airlines, at least.
2: Also, at the airlines, I think they've always sort of had an orientation toward labor where labor's... Disposable. Expendable. Yeah. Yeah, expendable. Right. Yes.
0: Right. So you can think of this on some level as like the chickens coming home to roost in an industry that has always had bad labor relations. Yeah. Which is kind of what happened to restaurants as well.
1: Yes. I mean, it's unfortunate that the consequences befall consumers who just want to go and be free and fly and travel. And like, they're the ones suffering. And it's
0: also unfortunate that all of this seems to be happening at exactly the same time that jet fuel is like costs record amounts. And so for that reason alone, airline ticket prices have to go up just Mm -hmm. to cover the cost of...
2: You've been on planes know, I, recently. Does this reflect your experience? Yeah, tell us all about it. <laughs> oh, I,
0: like, There is literally nothing more boring than, like, people's, like, <laughs> travel nightmare stories. But I will say that the European airports that everyone expects to be, like, super efficient, like Copenhagen, are not. Like, I was just in Zurich Airport, which is like, <laughs> is there any more, like, more efficient airport in the world? And it was a shit show. Oh, dear. So, yeah, they, it's everywhere. It's not just LaGuardia people.
1: The regular supply chain of stuff is getting back to normal. As you pointed out already, the shipping costs are back down and all this. But, like, the human supply chain is messed up right now and always has been. Not always has been, but, like, airline workers and airport workers were probably underpaid and mistreated all along. And then that supply chain kind of got disrupted and now it's still getting back to where it was before
0: it's the services industry you know generally the consensus the economic consensus is that we had during the pandemic this like unprecedented surge in demand for goods and for stuff Mm -hmm. and that has now very quickly much more quickly than people had anticipated segued into this new surge for experiences and travel and Mm. there just wasn't the capacity in the travel industry to be able to cope with the global rise in demand. Because, you know, who could have anticipated that come the summer, everyone in Europe wanted to go on holiday? Oh, wait, that happens every (laughs) summer.
1: (laughs) I remember talking to someone who was laid off. I think she was a flight attendant in 2020 who had been laid off and was, like, using SNAP, like food assistance, to get by. And it's just, I was thinking about her preparing for this segment, like, you dumb airlines, what were you thinking? Like, you put your workers on food assistance, you know what I mean? Of course they don't want to come back.
0: So the new thing, right, is that people are beginning to cancel their holidays. Their flights get canceled, and rather than scramble to rebook in some kind of suboptimal way, they're just like, fuck it. Travel is terrible right now. Maybe I'm not going to go anywhere. I like the price hikes and the terrible conditions in the airports and everything are kind of doing their job, right? Yeah. And they're 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 having an effect in slightly reduced demand, which is, necessary but it does kind of raise the question in my mind of does this just increase the pent-up demand for what people are calling revenge travel
1: what is revenge travel actually it means you're traveling but you're angry what does it mean
0: i I think you you spend
1: more money than usual it it means
0: you're you're getting your revenge on the (laughs) pandemic basically you were stuck in one place for two years Uh you're like now i'm getting my revenge i'm going to vietnam Except if you're not going to Vietnam because that's still locked down.
1: Right. And you're not getting actual revenge. You're just going to have a nice you're time. You're going to
0: show that virus what that what's what. <laughs> I didn't call it. Re- I mean, revenge travel is not, <laughs> not my coinage. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: should
0: we have a numbers round? Emily's nodding. We should. What's your number?
1: 165,398,851 is my number. I don't usually have such big numbers.
0: <laughs> is is <laughs> that the number of workers in America?
1: No. That's the number of Chilean pesos, an unnamed man who worked at a cold meat manufacturing company story. in Chile, was mistakenly paid for his salary. And it translates into about $180,000. He's supposed to be making $545 a month. So I guess this is like more than 300 times his normal salary. So he got this money and he he went to HR and told them apparently well they
0: called him they realized they called him and they're like we Whoopsies. paid you a bit. he's like oh yeah don't worry i'll bring it in tomorrow he's
1: like i i don't uh I'll, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll bring it i'll bring it in and then he proffered his resignation and hasn't been heard <laughs> since <laughs> and this is my favorite story of the week Legend. <laughs> yeah i read about it in business insider but i guess the report was from a financial paper in chile is that stealing? I think it's just...
0: It, it is stealing. It is illegal. He'll probably get caught. <laughs> but like, you can see the temptation, right? It's just like, I, I haven't, I have just got like an amount of money that I never dreamed I would ever have. I'm just going to peace it out.
1: I'm out. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I mean, if Citibank, was it Revlon and Citibank? Exactly. I mean, what's like the like difference? That. Yeah, I think he should be fine. He should cite Bonk Verms and <laughs> just live a life. Live his life.
0: I, I love that deep cut with bonk firms.
1: <laughs> Look it up if you don't remember.
0: Yeah. No, it's a good story. Um, do you want a crypto number or a music number? Uh, Elizabeth? Music. Music? <laughs> All right. Um, Are
1: you going to play us a song? He's picking up his phone. Okay,
0: I'm going I'm going to not. Aww. I'm going to not play you a song. There's a, <laughs> there's a reason I am not going to play you a song. And the reason I'm not going to play you the song is because no one can play this song. Well, only one person can play this song. And if they do play it, they need to play it manually on vinyl.
1: Is it the Pharma Bros thing?
0: No. No. No, no. This okay. is a new one. Okay. So anyway, my number is 1,482,000, which is the number of pounds that were spent at a Christie's auction on a vinyl record of Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan that he just re-recorded in an edition of one. So it's a little bit like that Wu-Tang album. (laughs) And he put it on a record, T-Bone Burnett put it on a record and said, this is a very high-quality record for reasons that I don't pretend to understand. And I'm making an edition of one of this. And then whoever wants to buy it just needs to buy it at this auction. So it went for 1.5 million pounds. And yeah, it just seems, it seems like very odd to me on a bunch of levels. But there is this interesting question, right? That there is a difference between the object and the recording. So I am a little bit unclear on what happens. Like now, if you buy the object, are you allowed to put the recording out in the world so that we can play it on Slate Money. And I suspect not. I think that the recording, the rights are owned by Bob Dylan. And he's like, no, all you're allowed to do is play your record on your record player at home. And if you want to put it on the internet. This seems totally like that's a very violation.
2: un-Bob Dylan thing to do. I mean, he I just imagine. sold his catalog for what? Like a half a billion dollars Yeah, he sold, his,
0: he sold his catalog for a gazillion dollars. He's, he's a star artist in the stable... Of, Gagosian. He makes a lot of money selling bad paintings at Gagosian. So, yeah, this is actually more or less in line with the 2020s Bob Dylan. Maybe not the 1970s Bob Dylan. He,
2: yeah, I, admittedly, do... I, I still have the 70s Dylan. He was in, in a Victoria's head. Secret ad
1: a few years ago, actually. He's just a total sellout to his 60s self, I think. I don't know. Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever, I wanted to say this, Felix whatever questions you might have about what to do with the recordings, the answers, my friend. You know where I Oh they no, are.
0: no 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 <laughs> no 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 no! <laughs> Red card, Emily Peg. I had to do it. Elizabeth, do you have a number.
2: Yeah, my number is a uh, ninety thousand dollars, and this is kind of an extension of something we talked about last week. A woman named Stephanie Clegg bought. What she thought was a Marc Chagall auction from Sotheby's for ninety k. Oh,
0: yeah, I love this story.
2: It was reappraised in two thousand eight for a hundred k. And so Sotheby's calls her up and says, "Now might be a good time, you know, to sell your Chagall." It's Sotheby's
0: the- is the people who did the reappraisal, yes, by the way.
2: Yes. So they sent it off to the committee that oh, no. appraises Chagalls in France. And they decide that it's a fake, and so now now they're going to keep it and ostensibly destroy it because in France you're allowed to do that if something's found to be a counterfeit. So of course she's suing Sotheby's for something like 175k, and it seems like there's not really anything anybody can do about this. But I was thinking about it. It's like uh, if you were in her shoes, and in this, I understand why the French law exists. But I would kind of want my fake Chagall back. <laughs> totally.
0: This is a, <laughs> a, a so. very common occurrence in the art world. And there are two different questions here. Like, one is, should she get her fake Chagall back? Yes. And the other one is, does she have a claim against other bits? Yes. And my take <laughs> is yes and no.
2: Yes, she should get it back. No, she doesn't have
0: a claim. Yeah, I'm I'm a great believer in keeping fakes as long as you know that they're fake. One of the things that the Warhol committee that used to do before it disbanded was if it found something was fake, they would just take a big indelible stamp and stamp fake on the back and then send it back. <laughs> which is which is good, yeah, right? It yeah, does it does the job. Examiner. But you can you can do it. You could just take a, you know, a sharpie and write fake on it in big capital letters and then send it back and that solves the problem of her being able to then sell it as something real you know it is always possible that these things can get reappraised although it's very unlikely because the only appraisal that matters is the official Chagall estate they found that it is fake so yeah to all intents and purposes it's a fake it's not worth anything if she wants her fake she back she can have it back but honestly it doesn't sound like that's what she cares about what she cares about is I had this thing that I spent $90,000 on and I thought was worth twice that and now it's worth nothing. So I've, I want to sue someone. And so instead of suing the Shigala estate, which is what people used to do in these things, she's decided to sue Sotheby's. But Sotheby's is just like an auction house. I don't understand what the claim is there.
1: But they called her up. like She was just sitting at home with her painting thinking it was No, worth.
0: she took it to Sotheby's to get it appraised. Uh, they then said, yeah, this is this thing that, is presumptively real, so we think it's worth $100,000, but before we want to sell it, we want to get it officially appraised by the Chagall estate, and then they sent it off, which is exactly what you should do as an mm-hmm. auction house. Is just double-check these things. Sometimes that doesn't work. I don't think Sotheby's did anything wrong.
2: It seems like she maybe didn't understand the process because part of her lawsuit is just saying that Sotheby's misrepresented to her that it had already been authenticated in some way or she took their appraisal in-house appraisal as a kind of authentication and suggested that they were misrepresenting. Uh,
0: Yeah I think that's an in-house appraisal is just how much do you think it can go for at auction and she did buy it at Sotheby's and when Sotheby's sells something they are representing that they think that it's real.
1: Well that could she could sue them for that. So
0: there is a bunch of T's and C's around that, and generally that representation lasts for somewhere between three and five years. So that is expired, and Sotheby's is saying, "But listen, we will take all of the money that we made on that sale, and we will give it back to you as a kind of apology." Which they do not need to do, but they're willing to do as a gesture of goodwill. And and she's like, "No, that's that's not enough. You promised me it was real." But the fact is that Sotheby's, as I said, like Sotheby's has no ability to promise that something is real. The only entity in the world that can actually say that a Chagall is real is the Chagall estate. Ultimately, what the Chagall estate says is the final verdict. And what Sotheby's says doesn't matter because it's up to the Chagall estate to determine whether it's fake or not. So you can't can't blame Sotheby's for getting it wrong. Everyone makes mistakes, you know?
1: People don't have an expectation that Sotheby's is selling real stuff. No, they
0: totally do. But Oops. the reason why they have that expectation is because Sotheby's does things like send them to get authenticated before they but put she, them into sale. But why didn't
2: send it in bought, the first place? Yeah. She bought the painting from them in the first place, yeah. so they didn't authenticate it when they sold it to her for 90K
0: or... Right, that's the, only, that's the only slightly weird thing which I don't entirely understand is why didn't it come with some kind of official authentication the first time around? And I'm a little bit unclear on that one. But yeah, the remedy for like when you sold this thing... 15 years ago, you didn't send it to France to get authenticated first is not like you owe me one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars now.
1: What's well, a sad story, I think. Maybe it's not. She probably has lots of other money, right? <laughs> She's fine. Yeah, if you're not the kind of person who her.
2: has, yeah. If you spend $100,000, you're, you're probably fine. You can, can afford it. You're going to be okay.
1: Plus, it's a good job market. So look, if she has no money, there's plenty of jobs out
0: there. Airlines right? are nothing. But, but it, it does <laughs> remind me a bit of that classic story about like, Alec Baldwin and Mary Boone. But we will we will not get into that one. I think that's it. We are going to have a slate plus, which remind me, Emily.
1: Well, I read this story in the New York Times where they like you know when you ask the question, what are the odds? Oh, I love that <laughs> story. Yes.
0: We're going to have a what are the odds conversation <laughs> about what are the odds that two acting FBI directors would both get audited by the IRS at the same time. I love this story so much. So we're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. But otherwise, thanks for hanging out with us on this Saturday. We love your emails. This is actually going to be my other number, including four emails, that all of them saying the exact same thing, saying, did you know that coupons are going onto the blockchain? <laughs> and they all came from, like, people with you know email addresses like Brandon 0976 and I'm like thank you Brandon 0976 for telling me the coupons are going on the blockchain I'm sure this is did you know I I had (laughs) (laughs) we do love your emails keep them coming and many many thanks as ever to the whole Slate crew here at Slate in Brooklyn and also at CPN Almada, also in Brooklyn we will be back next week with even more Honey. Okay, Emily, this is where you get your probability nerdery on.
1: Yes. Well, I don't know. This is where I learn more about probability, me thanks. But the New York Times published an investigation earlier this week where they reported that James Comey, the former FBI director and Andrew McCabe, who was his deputy, both were subject to this very rare IRS tax audit. And of course, as one would expect, even James Comey goes through the whole audit and winds up the IRS owes him like $300.
2: Just
1: <laughs> very funny. So you read the story and you're like, mm, what are the odds? And then the next day the Times comes out with this like very long piece that tells you what the odds are that two former enemies of Donald Trump from the FBI would be audited in this way, and it's like one in 95 million, I think, they say?
0: Well, let's... let's, Well, they break it down. They break it down. It's no. It's much more complicated about that. And and one of the reasons I love this story is because they quote Jordan Ellenberg and Drew Mm -hmm. um, Gelman and, you know, these people who understand statistics. And... The point is that everything in the world that happens is unlikely.
1: Yes, that's what I loved about it. It was like, what are the odds of anything happening? The,
0: the, the odds <laughs> the odds that I would walk into this recording studio at exactly the time I did, and that I would take the bike that I did to get here, and that you two would be waiting for me. Like, all of the—anything that happens, every sentence that is said, is ex-ante, like, incredibly improbable. If you specify in it— In
2: simulation. If you it.
0: specify it narrowly enough— right? And so if you're like, what are the odds that James Comey and Andrew McCabe would both be audited by the IRS? That's a very narrow specification. And so by definition, it's going to be very unlikely. Mm -hmm. But as the article points out, there were any number of Trump enemies out there. And most of the Trump enemies were not audited by the IRS, at least not that we know of. Right, And so, you know, what maybe the right question is, what are the chances that two of the trump enemies defined however you want to define it would be audited by the irs and then depending on how many people you think are trump enemies obviously that those odds go down the higher the number of enemies but then also like why are we talking about auditing by the irs there's many other ways that the federal government can retaliate against people So maybe there would be some, I don't know, FBI investigation into them or something, right? So there's so many different ways you can specify it. And this is why probability is such an interesting subject, is that unless you specify what you're looking at in advance before it happens, it kind of doesn't have any meaning anymore. Like, if you go up to a roulette table and put all of your money on seventeen and you know that there's like a 1 in 38 chance of it hitting 17, and then it's 17, and you win lots of money, That's some, that you're like, wow, what were the odds of that? And you're mm-hmm. like, well, it was 1 in 38. But like, if it comes up 12 instead, you don't go, oh my God, wow, it came up 12. What are the odds of that? Well, it's also 1 in 38, right? It's the same chance. right?
2: So, it's also not a random probability game here. You know, the yeah. IRS does have specific selection criteria, for who they audit and who they don't. So- well, they
0: claim it's quasi-random, right? This, so this particular program, that, like, to be clear, this is not the main bulk of IRS audits where they're like, there's something fishy going on here, we're going to audit you. This is a separate program where they audit much more randomly, and they're like we want to just see if we pick people at random and audit them how accurate were their tax returns and like how much are people cheating on their taxes how good are people at filling out their taxes that kind of thing so this is they do pick slightly richer people more than they pick poorer people and that kind of stuff but it is meant to be at least a little bit random
2: that still screws up like the times analysis treated it like a completely random probability game, where the shifting frame is really, what's your set of people that you're talking about? Is it everybody? Or is it just FBI members? Is it people that Trump hates?
0: Wait, you've lost, wait, that's two different (laughs) things. One is like, does the IRS pick randomly? And should we be overweighting Comey because he has a higher income than most Americans? Then the second question is like, what is the universe of people from whom like, we're going to assume that audit is suspicious.
2: Yeah, I just said, my thing is, I don't think that the universe of people, their universe analysis is based on everybody being potentially audited, but we know that that's not how that program
0: works. Yeah, everyone uh, is potentially audited. That is how the program works.
2: I, the Times piece insinuated that it wasn't, that there were some selection criteria that they didn't enumerate, but...
0: They overweight certain people, as mm. they say. Like, if if you earn more, you are more likely to be audited Mm -hmm. but everyone has some non-zero probability of getting audited and you know it's like the lottery someone has to lose
1: so at the end of the day the times did publish this story and they don't know conclusively that these two guys were audited because they were enemies of trump or not the whole story was like this is weird and then they had to run this like two thousand word piece explaining how it is or isn't weird is also pretty interesting to me as just from a journalistic perspective
0: oh i feel like this piece was just a piece of fun this was fun yeah yeah, but this wasn't like oh shit now we need to understand. no no
1: it wasn't like a yeah it wasn't like a mea culpa or like uh, but
0: but (laughs) but i think realistically like to to sum up the whole thing yeah of course it was political like this was not coincidence
1: but you but no but they don't know that
0: yeah right so yeah but this is, that's an epistemic question, right? Depending on how you mean. In order to know that for sure, you would need a smoking gun where someone at the IRS said, oh, yeah, we managed to throw Jim Comey into the random audit bucket because Trump told us to. And then you would know it. But you, right. that you would only get that from like finding a human being who said that. You can't find that through probabilistic analysis.
1: It's just interesting from a me- from a journalism perspective, like the story is this thing happened, but you don't have the evidence. You don't have the person on background saying, like, oh, yeah, they did this on purpose. You just can say this happened and then you can kind of make conclusions about it, but you don't actually know. And it's not like a, I don't know, let's say like it was Comey getting pulled over by the police or something like every day on the way to Work, you know what I mean. And then you could say like Comey got—I don't know—it just feels like a story that would be more clear in my head. You could say like Comey got pulled over twenty-five percent of the time he was in the car. The average person only gets pulled over X percent of the time. This just seems so much more like that.
0: That that would be exactly the same. That would be the same like question. (sighs) If we know this is incredibly unlikely, and so it's presumptively corrupt, but we we don't have a human being saying that. Right. I mean, one of the things that happened on Thursday this week is that Elon Musk and Twitter both gave background briefings to journalists about the bot question on Twitter. And Twitter was like, "Ah, oh, but we're well on top of the bot system, <laughs> and we are, in, and it's fine. And then the Musk camp was like, this is terrible, and we have no idea what's going on, and we're going to use it to try and back out of the deal. And the question is, what is the probability that both sides would independently give background briefings on the same day without knowing about the other one there's obviously a much bigger issue here than Mm -hmm. just bots but yeah again you all you can do is just like report that this probably isn't a coincidence but you don't you can't yeah like this whole idea of the degree of epistemic certainty that you need in order to report something in the paper is just it does my head in
1: i guess it makes me think Back to our Boris conversation, and what was nice about his scandals is you could really see. Oh, he was lying! Like he said this thing about the guy, and he also said he didn't know the guy did the thing. So there, he was lying. But with something like this, it's like it appears to be shady, but in the English, language you, you just don't know, to be
2: something along the lines of the odds of this happening are so statistically unlikely that we don't have a better explanation for why it happened other than right, which yeah. is why
0: you then have to ask the question: Well, what are the odds? And then, yeah. as we've discovered that statement starts to evaporate the minute you, eva- you, you, minute you examine it. it. doesn't. It's very hard to actually say with confidence the odds of this happening are very slim because the question is, how are you defining this? And it becomes very...
1: So can prevalent. I also draw the conclusion that life is a miracle because the odds of anything happening are <laughs> infinitesimal and yeah, I can't think, if I walk this earth? I
0: think you should. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Thank you, New York Times. And we will ignore the uh, anthropic principle. What's the
1: anthropic principle?
0: The fact that you're only asking, you you can only be cognizant of the miraculousness of life if you are alive. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we will quit Slate Plus and leave you to go back to your bong hits.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Slate Plus.